that, you know, it's like how kids talk about baseball players. That's how we talk about albums. We're just trying to postpone mortality. They need that to fill some kind of void that they have. The search for the Yeti. He's a duck. <laughs> well, don't interfucking rough. You make what you want of me, I will keep you anyway. It's the Smashing Pumpcast. I'm your co-host, Pat O'Brien. Frank Garcia-Hale will be joining us shortly. And is it just me, or is it getting hot in here? It's been 15 years, and the water levels around Old Lady Liberty's skirt have only risen, along with, in my humble opinion, the power and influence of your Smashing Pumpkins. It's my honor, on behalf of Frank and myself, to welcome you to the kickoff of our Zeitgeist Summer Series, starting with this introductory episode in which we'll share our personal histories with the singular, very loaded, elusive 2007 comeback album by a then newly rebooted version of The Smashing Pumpkins. We'll also be using this episode to delve into the factual information and backstory surrounding this album, of which there is obviously a lot. We'll then be back with a proper Zeitgeist album episode, and by that I mean the full album, all the songs from all the versions, where we'll jump right into talking about the tracks, and that is all the tracks. So there's no need to drive around to different big box stores or whatever, because hey, they've all been turned into banks now anyway. But before that, uh, we're obviously starting this episode a little differently. I'm I'm here by myself because... Long story short, I need to leave town for a bit. Um, I'm going back to Buffalo. There's just some unfolding family business that I kind of need to be there to attend to. Um, so, yeah, it's a little bit of a challenging time, but, you know, I, I'm good. And um, I consider myself really lucky to have a truly just great and fantastic friend in Frank uh, he's super supportive, and not to mention he also uh, single-handed, single-handedly crafts this podcast that you listen to into the great-sounding, well-edited, well-crafted, you know, funny musical thing that it is. So um, I love you, Frank. Thank you so much for holding it down while I while I just kind of tend to my family for a little bit. Um, and thank you to all of you who are kind enough to listen to and support this show. If you dig the show, consider checking out our Patreon. Um, if you don't want to commit to something like that yet, we understand. We also have a buy me a coffee. You could throw a few bucks there. And of course, we have t-shirts for sale. And these are all findable in our show notes and of course, the link tree on our socials. Um, and yeah, all of that goes to just making this the best possible cast that it can be. So, with that, I'm going to turn it over to my good friend, Frank Garcia-Hale, and I will be back later in the show to share my zeitgeist memories. Frank, take it away. Thank you, Pat, for that introduction. Yes, hello, I am Frank Garcia-Hale. This is a Smashing Pumpcast. And we are in Zeitgeist Summer. All summer long, we're going to be covering Zeitgeist and uh, all the Zeitgeist goodies. And today, we're just going to be going over, as Pat said, the history, history and intro to the album. And uh, given a little bit of personal history, since I don't have Pat here, uh, I didn't want it just to be me just 
blabbing on about the history, reading off of spcodex.wiki and spfc.org. By the way, thank you so much. Without you, I don't know how we would do this show. Uh, you, you are invaluable to this podcast because without you, we wouldn't have all this information. We certainly don't remember this information. It's just too much, especially in the zeitgeist era. So um, a couple of years back when the pandemic started, uh, and we started this podcast, we were looking through to see if there were any other Pumpkins podcasts. And in our search, uh, we had found one other podcast, which was SPA to Z, uh, which we love those guys. Uh, but then we only found like certain episodes that covered the Pumpkins. And one of the best ones that we found from that lot was uh, a podcast by the name of The Discographers. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, it is incredible the way that they break this down because it's not just track commentary. They go into the music theory of a band's discography. And uh, we had kind of been back and forth reaching out to them saying, hey, I like your your podcast and blah, blah, blah. Uh, you sh we should have you on sometime. And they said, how about Zeitgeist? And so we put a little pin on that. And now that we're here, we have them. Please, pumpkin heads everywhere, please welcome to the Smashing Pumpcast, Brian and Tyler of The Discographers. Oh, thank, thank you. Um, th thank you for that great intro. Uh, your $20 is in the mail, Frank. For, for oh, great. <laughs> I was 25 but okay. Oh, oh inflation always gets <laughs> yeah, me. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, it was 20 at the beginning of the pandemic, but there you go. <laughs> uh, how y'all doing? Doing great. How about you? Uh, good. Thanks for joining me, uh, keeping me company here. Uh, as we kick off Zeitgeist Summer. So what we're going to do is kind of uh, go through our personal history with Zeitgeist. This is how Pat and I like to start each of these album episodes. Since you are my guest, I would like to hear your history with, one, the Pumpkins, and two, why Zeitgeist? Why did you want to come on the show for Zeitgeist? Tyler? Okay, I'll, I'll go for it. Uh, so... Uh, in terms of like background, like uh, I'm trying to think of the best place to start, but before Zeitgeist came out, I I was familiar with the singles, um, obviously today or tonight tonight and um, also today <laughs> the. The, the the big hits you know oh the 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 world is a vampire song I you know I knew all of those from the radio and. Uh, a few years prior, I had gotten into Nine Inch Nails in, a, in kind of the same path of, oh, this big this is a big band that I should know as a rock fan. So, and they have a new album coming out. So I'll dive into this new one that's coming out, and that that plan worked great for Nine Inch Nails. I'm a big Nine Inch Nails fan. And then for so fast forward a couple of years to Zeitgeist. Uh, there's like the new one coming out. I was like, all right, this is my this is my door to Smashing Pumpkins. Let me just dive in, and it it really clicked with my rock sensibilities. So it seemed like a natural uh, one for me to really enjoy. I don't know, Brian. How I, I think we're very we, Brian and I are friends from like high school. Um, so we had we got into this very similar. I don't know. Do you have any anything else to expand onto that? I think the thing that was interesting for me, because my, my background was very similar, you know, my I I was born in the very, very late 80s, barely qualify. Um, and so I had picked up, you know, the singles uh, by, by way of my older sister. Right. So so I, I was familiar with, you know, anything that hit top, hit top 10 for them. But 
Uh, so Tyler, you know, I think went and picked up the, the CD at probably Best Buy. <laughs> I, I actually, I, I don't think I ever, I've ever actually purchased Zeitgeist. I don't think I've ever actually given I feel Billy like you picked up an actual copy. Money. Uh, oh, no, no, no. You just, you, you yoinked and then I, uh, I borrowed your yoink. It was, it was, we'll it was put it that way. It's, it's not an era that I'm particularly proud of. Um, but I mean, were, it, it was a little bit about that. You weren't entirely alone. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, you, can, you, can, you can copy things infinitely. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Um, Sorry, carry on, Brent. But, but yeah, I, uh, I, I remember hearing a handful of people that, that were, uh, you know, just a hair older, older than us, <clears throat> not really taking very kindly to it right away, and just being absolutely confused as to why not. I'm like, wow, this this rocks pretty hard, but it's got some some other like weird and interesting stuff going on. Like this actually kicks a lot of ass, and that that that, that was kind of just my my initial foray into it was just like, okay, this this, this is just a really good rock album. <laughs> why are people crapping on it? Yeah. So then, like, okay, so that was your intro to it. You couldn't understand why, because I know from my perspective, at that time, I had just finished college when the album came out, and I moved to New York. So it was my first year in New York, and I was obsessed, uh, obsessive fan during the original era. My first concert was in 96, uh, seeing them during the Melancholy Tour, and I saw the final, not the final Metro show, but the final tour in Dallas I saw them play and I kind of felt like that's it you know I, I can't get it can't get better than that it felt like a good ending so when the band came back I was a little skeptical as more like most of the fans were being like well there's no James there's no Darcy and at that time I didn't really know the the ins and outs of um how much Billy and Jimmy were really the the heart and the core of the band yeah, uh, and that how much they did on those first couple of albums, and like you know, the only true proper band album is Melancholy, maybe you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was hard for me at that time to accept that. Uh, it, it was one of those things where it's like I don't know, is it really the band? Is it you know, if it's not the whole band? And I had kind of a weird chip on my shoulder about it. Mm -hmm. And then at that time too, I had moved to Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Williamsburg and Greenpoint, Brooklyn, which was like hipster central in 20, you know, uh, 2007. Yeah. And it was like I was back in junior high or high school moving from Texas. I was like, I don't want to be seen as some kind of hayseed, you know, uh, you know, simping for some kind of like, you know, huge alternative rock band. That's not cool. You know, uh, I have to lie and say I was into pavement since I was three or whatever. But <laughs> I... I, it was hard because then I was excited about the album. I was excited. I was like, I'm still going to give it a chance. But at the same time, I was getting into like garage rock, you know, like the Nuggets box set and all that shit. And I was trying to change my taste and change my style. And um, I didn't give it a fair shake. And also, I was so broke. So I wasn't able to see them live. And I couldn't afford the album either. When, you know, there was all these versions that came out. And Pat talks about this in his intro and we'll talk about this too. We'll go kind of beat by beat about the info of the album. We can discuss uh, some of this stuff, but I got overwhelmed. Like how many versions of this album are there? Mm -hmm. And I remember kind of giving it a quick listen uh, based off of, again, it was the time. If you're broke, you were torrenting stuff, you mm -hmm. were downloading illegally, you were kind of right. giving it a taste. And if you liked it, you paid the money to get a slightly better quality <laughs> audio. And, um, 
that's what I did with Zeitgeist, and I just didn't give it the proper time. I would only listen to it like on my way to the train, to the L train, and then I, I don't know, certain songs stood out to me. So those four songs or whatever, I just kind of stuck to, and I never gave the album the proper due that it deserved. Um, and years later, I mean, honestly, until like maybe the past year when we, you know, from doing this podcast for the past two years, really sitting down with it, and I've been listening to it a ton. Uh, this past month, I was like, man, what a fool. Uh, this this is some really good stuff. And I think also doing the podcast, going from their demos up to this point, it puts everything in such a different perspective from the band, what the band is, what Billy and Jimmy's role is, uh, who's even part of the band during the Zeitgeist era. Everything about this is just so rich and it makes me appreciate the song so much more and Pat and I will go into it when we get to the track by track. But overall, at the time, I could have given it more attention, and I didn't. It just where where I was. But luckily, it found me, and I can appreciate it for what it is. And it's actually a really solid album. And I bet if people gave it a chance, and I know it's hard because it's not on streaming. Uh, <laughs> eventually, uh, I think if people really listen to it, they could appreciate it more now. And I think you're seeing that with like people are posting like live clips from this era and they're like holy shit and it's like yeah, <laughs> yeah. they're bringing some of these songs back live as well so that's my history with uh the album i just kind of felt like a little overwhelmed just wasn't in the right place right headset but or headspace but i did really love some of the tracks uh and that's what stood out i'm back and man zeitgeist all right, here we go. Let's put a quarter in the uh, Wayback Machine to 2007. A younger man I was. I was just entering, well, I guess the workforce, you could call it. Um, I had finally graduated college. <laughs> um, yeah, this it, I graduated college in 2007. I was slated to in 2006, but I took a little year off there and sort of... Uh, whatever you know transferred schools what i actually did was um yeah i transferred i transferred schools earlier to a different art school which i soon found out not understanding student loans at the time um, and money and you know all that stuff that i couldn't afford so i went back to my original state school purchase college which is an awesome art school um and yeah, a lot of cool musicians came from there actually around the time, like just a little ahead of me, Regina Spector, Dan Deacon, um, all sorts of sort of classical and non-pop people. And, you know, so it's awesome place, no regrets. But anyway, finally get the old diploma in 2007. Um, and... You know, so I head back home to Buffalo for a very brief period, sort of my last, like, you know, short little summer vacation, which really wasn't one because what I started doing right away was um, applying to jobs in New York City, which is where I was going to go. All the while, I had Zeitgeist on my radar. I had remained and probably became more of a rabid Smashing Pumpkins fan in the you know the time since the since the breakup and throughout you know i was that like when zwan formed obviously we've talked about zwan i was there for it billy put out his solo album there for it 
poetry book. Waited five hours at, uh, in Union Square outside the Virgin Megastore. Was it worth every minute? You know, time will tell. I don't know. But um, when the, when I heard that the pumpkins were... And, you know, of course, I, I, had, I had been aware of Billy's um, desire to reunite the pumpkins because he took out a friggin' newspaper ad. So, you know, anyone paying attention... Or anyone just reading their Chicago Chicago paper in the morning kind of maybe knew that, um, but I was you know this album, though it has not stood as my most listened to Pumpkins album as probably is the case until kind of again recently, uh, as is maybe the case for a lot of people, was by far the most highly anticipated by me. I was psyched for it i knew that it was not the exact uh, you know i knew it was not the original lineup or i knew it was like uh, you know a partial original lineup but like i said i was there for i i think as much as i love the pumpkins i also recognized like oh i love billy's work so i'm showing up for his other bands his other projects and obviously you know i had dreamed about a day when um the pumpkins might get back together you know so I was so psyched, and I do remember they had the, the website with the countdown clock, which I was paying attention to, you know, in, I, I don't know, exa- I, it, um, I, Frank probably told you when it went up, but, um, you know, it, it, in May of that year, Tarantula came out, and so I have a lot of memories of this album kind of in this really tiny little gap, this, like, month I had between sort of, I wasn't a child anymore, but sort of uh, youth and college and high school and uh, all that stuff and adulthood being thrown into the the rat race of New York City and needing to get a job quick. So, um, yeah, I, I went home to Buffalo and Tarantula was in heavy rotation and I was psyched about it. I, I, you know, I was hearing it on the radio all the time, which was like amazing because i had spent all these years you know kind of carrying the torch for the pumpkins and suddenly you know they're on my local rock radio station again 103.3 the edge buffalo's new rock alternative um so you know i experienced that song a lot driving around kind of doing whatever i was doing hanging out with friends i I, you know i remember right when i kind of got back home i had sort of a driveway hang with some old pals and uh actually my friend brought it up to me a couple years ago when i saw him because we were drinking like kind of those glass bottle tall boys of miller high life you know the the sort of big big glass things and i had in mine the biggest fattest fly was just preserved in my glass bottle of miller high life so (laughs) i um I, I don't even remember, uh, you know, this was partly a joke, but partly because I reached out to Miller somehow, I guess maybe their website, I don't know how I did it, email, um, and I said, dear sir or madam, there's a fly in my drink, and I need you to make this right, and I remember months later, and I think I might still have it, and I think I want to find it and maybe frame it, but I was sent an oversized check from the Miller Brewing Company for branded check with the Miller logo on it, you know, beautiful check for exactly $5. So anyway, my my friend who I saw, um, Ron, a couple years ago reminded me of this. 
And I also remember at that moment, we were hanging out. Uh, like, he had a Jeep. We were sort of, like, just, ha- you know, parked in the driveway. And the radio was on. And uh, Tarantula came on. And as I've said before, you know, there was a certain point when I was kind of the only one in my friend group carrying the torch for the pumpkins. And it had been that way for a long time. And I just remember that song came on and we were hanging out and my buddy Ron was like, this really fucking rules. And I felt so good, you know, like everybody had kind of moved on, like everybody was into different stuff, punk and rap and like, you know, whatever. And uh, as was I, but you know, um, yeah, it felt really good. You know, it, it, it felt great. And then going back to uh, the applying to jobs in New York City I, I applied to a couple things went to New York where my girlfriend at the time Shannon who's still a friend um, great you know great friend great person had moved in to Astoria Queens with another friend of ours who is a big pumpkins fan Trisha who is a listener of the show or at least has listened to the show Trisha I love you and um, I basically I moved there i had a job interview at the school of visual arts which was the the school that i had gone to for one year till you know uh that i basically couldn't continue to go to because i ran out of finance or i didn't have enough financial aid and it was too expensive as private colleges are and i got a job at the financial aid office of the school where i couldn't get enough financial aid to go there and that was my first job in New York City. Maybe I had one other little kind of temp office one before that, but I worked at this place for a year. Um, talked to a lot of parents who were taking out second mortgages on their home so their child could go to the school. It was very, very upsetting, but I learned a lot about um, the grift and the scam that is, uh, you know, college tuition and student loans and predatory lending and all that stuff. So, um, that was a, an interesting education, but when I got to the city and it was me and like three other young women, my girlfriend and two, you know, Trisha and another roommate kind of all crammed in this small apartment in Astoria, Queens, but Trisha had saved me. She had ripped out like a full page zeitgeist ad from the village voice or from, you know, one of those, those, uh, free art papers in, New York City. So, you know, I was waiting for Zeitgeist. I was ready for it. And I was pretty psyched on Tarantula. I had gotten, I had kind of moved past the, the, you know, the need for the band to be made up entirely of original uh, members. I had processed that. I think it's still, you know, like we've talked about many times, um, you know, you get, you fall in love with these people, these characters, they get imprinted on you, like, you know, like a, you're a baby bird or something. So it's, you know, it, it did take a little kind of processing, but I was like, you know what? I thought about it as many people in, you know, critics and stuff, the people who g- gave it positive reviews were kind of like, it's always sort of just been Billy and Jimmy on the records anyway. And I figured, you know, hey, but, but that's good enough for me. So I was there for it. I was I I was a little bit um, surprised by because I had kind of, you know, the the sort of art treatment of the whole thing, the American flag, the Shepherd Fairy, 
um, look, the sort of updated scrawl SP heart. I thought I, I, I was like a little taken aback by the new artistic visual art direction, but very excited by it. I was into it. I loved that I knew who the art, this artist was, you know, like, and, and um, I, the, you know, the Paris Hilton thing on the tarantula cover i was like okay all right sure no i could i get it i could get on board with that i i liked that it was a new direction i you know again here for it here for it here for it when i got my hands on the album i think like many people i just well i'll say this when the variant covers and the variant versions started coming out, I got overwhelmed. I got confused. There was a Best Buy exclusive. It, it, it was, I started to, I think that coupled with just being thrown onto the highway of life and being broke and, you know, like kind of, you know, I don't know. That began kind of a few years where my music collecting and stuff just out of scraping by and out of, you know, getting into comedy and whatever, um, which hadn't really happened totally yet. But like, you know, I, I think I got lost a little bit there. I didn't know where to begin. I didn't know how to own the album, you know, it, like I didn't like I didn't know which version to buy and I didn't want to have to choose and I didn't like the look of the yellow one and I didn't like that there was a black and white one. Um, you know, the iTunes variant cover I thought looked kind of cool. Um, and the purple one, you know, whatever. I liked the Andy one. Like, in retrospect, I think I kind of maybe get a little bit of, uh, I can appreciate a little bit of it. But another important thing that I missed out on having only the most basic version of the album are some of my favorite songs. I didn't know songs like Ma Bell and like stellar um and even the i guess you could call it title track even though it's not kind of on the main flagship version of the album zeit the song zeitgeist i love that listening to that recently has it's like really been um i think when you put all these things together as we have for for uh the purposes of this zeitgeist summer experience that coupled with a lot of years and a lot of iterations of the band and kind of making peace with that at the end of the day the pumpkins are billy is at the core of the pumpkins and jimmy is at the core of the pumpkins and maybe james is at the core of the pumpkins and jeff is at the core of the pumpkins now um but i think yeah i think it lost me i think it i was so excited for it i was so ready for it i didn't have any like skepticism i had you know made peace with the fact that wasn't going to be all the members whatever but when the album actually landed i think those 12 songs it just i think maybe i had a problem i think at the time maybe i was like oh and it's this song's in the transformers movie i think there it was just kind of like i felt a little which you know I don't care about, you know, whatever. You got to make a living somehow. Um, but I think I still had vague notions of, like, sellout. Uh, my sellout radar was still high because that's, like, you know, if you come from, like, a 90s, that was a, a music fan 
um, experience, that was a big concern. Selling, who's selling out, who's not, you know. So, I don't know. I think it didn't make me dislike the Pumpkins. It didn't make me dislike the album, but I think the album, when I got my hands on it, I also was probably not listening to it on good anything, you know. I didn't have, like, I was sort of a nomad at this point. I was like, moving my things back, gathering them up to move again, my meager belongings. So, I don't know. I didn't get to experience it. I think the proggier, more nuanced, or kind of like the things that are undeniably great about it, like Jimmy's playing is insane. And I always thought Jimmy was like a sick drummer, but I did you know, again, like I couldn't tell you why, you know, at the time. Like, I just love the band. I love the look. I love the songs. I love the album covers. So, you know, I guess all that to say, it sort of slipped through my fingers a little bit when it actually dropped. I didn't know how to have it and to hold it. And with all the Pumpkins albums, you know, in the CD era being such precious objects to me, I think it definitely hurt my experience that it felt like oh how do i how do i just hold own the whole thing how do i just have the i can't i'm not gonna buy five versions of this or whatever i how do i have this you know and when i have it do i even like it that much there's a lot of anticipation around the machina reissue and we've talked a lot about that and how it'll be great to kind of hear some of the machina 2 stuff remastered and the whole opus kind of you know, um, the movie, the final cut, the director's cut of that being finished. But I think Zeitgeist, in a way, especially now appreciating a lot of those songs, and especially a lot of those songs I didn't get to know because I just didn't own them. I just didn't have access to them uh, at the time. And I just didn't, re- I was too busy, frankly, with life to just like do, do the legwork to, to collect, you know. The whole album and I didn't want to have to at this point I'm in a very different place with it I it's like you know we've talked a lot about how it's awesome to just get to have these years go by and see this grand tapestry of the pumpkins and Billy's work and the highs and lows and I'm not saying this was a low but I don't think anybody even in the band would say it was a career high for the pumpkins just because of the reception alone and because it wasn't the band at full power. And I think the need for this to, to be a hit or the need for this to connect, there was a little bit of, you could feel it. You could feel the band or the record label or the music machine like sweating it a little bit over, over planning, over, you know, hedging kind of. And something about that left a weird taste in my mouth. So that was kind of it for my experience at the time. And then I would listen to it here and there, you know, over the years. But now it's like, oh, you could take any of these songs, plop them strategically into a set, and I'm going to be so excited to hear them. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of that's where I was in time when this came out that was my initial experience with it yeah that's the way my love was hearing my perspective of like being kind of a fan in siamese dream versus your experience i mean how does that how does that play for you 
I think it's uh, it, it's got an interesting commentary on like the power of expectations, right? Yeah, it, it, because Tyler and I, I think both both approach this album with really no expectations. Just you know, yeah. we 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 had heard the singles, and so uh, it was a blank slate, right? Uh, and and being able to just kind of enjoy it for what it was, rather than we thought it, we wanted it to be. Um, because of like some of the other bands that we've we've covered. Um, I mean, we're currently in in the middle of. Uh, doing a, a series on Lincoln Park that has been protracted, um, but like we were there from from the you know the very beginning of of their popularity, and then by the time they got into some of their more experimental release releases later, it was like, ugh, I mean, yeah. ugh what's this? And then with time, and and you know uh, allowing yourself to let go of those expectations, you kind of fall out of love with the band, and then come back and are able to fall in love with the album in a way that you couldn't when you were so invested. It's so weird to be a fan of, uh, like, a, a really huge fan of a band when you fall in love with a sound mm -hmm. that you're like, I love this, I love this band and I love this sound, and especially if they really follow their artistic, you know, need, their their desires, it's hard to grow with them at the time because you're like, but I like this, I like this mm -hmm. other thing, and I know that you need to do this to stay sane or feel creative, but man, I just, can you please just... Give me a little bit of that other stuff. Give me and it isn't butterfly wings again. Time <laughs> that you have that you have that perspective, you have that aerial view to be like, oh, this is awesome because this is like so much that I can. Because if it's all the same, in no shade to like ACDC, I mean, because they're the best at what they do. But it is really that thing of like, you know, I like that variety. That's what one of the things I love about like Nine Inch Nails or like the yeah. Pumpkins or you know, uh, even Pearl Jam to a certain extent, where it's like you have different eras and different, uh, but more so with like the pumpkins and nine inch nails where it's just like, it's so rich. There's just so much to enjoy. And even if you can take like, if you're like, well, I don't really like them. I guarantee if you ask somebody who doesn't like the pumpkins at all, they can at least pick three songs that they like. Yeah. Yeah. At the very least they can pick three songs because there's so many different types of styles and varieties. And even if they don't like his voice, they can at least like tolerate like 1979 or whatever, you yeah. know. And 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 kind of following up on that, like I'm looking. So for us in our you know post zeitgeist uh, pumpkins history, um, you know, I tried to kind of follow follow along the band, and I listened to little bits and pieces, and I went back and listened to you know the. I think I sat through each of the previous albums at least once or twice. Um, but nothing really clicked with me as much as Zeitgeist did. And then when we decided to do our season on the Pumpkins, we we're like, oh, this will, this is, you know, our goal is to kind of learn how, what the big deal about the Pumpkins is. Let's dive in on the Pumpkins. And we did very similar to what you do, you did is you start at the beginning and work your way through the timeline. And um, I had, I got a new appreciation for the band that uh, I didn't know I you know, I did that, how, how important they were. And I'm actually, I'm looking forward to in five or 10 years going back through again. And now that I've had some time from that initial, you know, from when we did the podcast listening, I'm looking forward to like, you know, I'm sure there's some stuff on melancholy that I thought was just okay. And I'm sure in five to 10 years, I'm going to be, Oh yeah. I, I don't know what I was thinking before. This is really good. This is really clicking with me. So I'm uh, I'm looking forward to doing that in the future. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things too about like again like basically Billy and Jimmy being the heart of the band. Mm -hmm. 
I had such an idea of what the band was in my head. And even when Darcy left mm-hmm. or when Jimmy was kicked out for that short while, it still felt like the band because it was still like the elements of it in its original years. And it was hard for me at that time to accept, even though I was like, oh, these they have Jeff and Ginger in the band and they're more than capable and people were unfair to them of course being like oh well they're just playing the part they're just yeah. slotting them in right they're filling a quota or whatever any whatever bullshit um and it's one of those things where i re- we realized after doing the podcast because we honestly we kind of felt a little bit like that even after the fa- even starting the podcast of being like what is the band <laughs> and then after researching and doing stuff and really diving in we're just like Okay, James and Darcy were uh, essential flavor to it, but they really were like the frosting, you know? Yeah. And, you know, we all love frosting. And it's like, yeah, it's an essential part of it, but it's, you know, the true cake, the really good shit is just, you know, Billy and Jimmy, and it works best when it's those two who are, you know, really at the center of it and it's working out from there. And now it is a little bit more with, like, uh, Jeff, you know, a little bit, but uh, it's still at the at its core, um, it's gonna be Billy and Jimmy, and even though James is back, I think his role is a little bit limited. Uh, than it, and even then, it wasn't really that big to begin with. It's just kind of the facade, you know. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like most of the time that uh, that Jimmy, sorry, that James was making uh, big contributions was was when they were all kind of playing more as a band on Melancholy. But for the most part, right. it really was Billy doing anything with a pitch. And Jimmy doing anything with a rhythm, right? Yeah. And 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 those are the essential components. If you remove either of those, it starts to feel less and less like the pumpkins. With absolutely uh, no disrespect to uh, to Mike, the the honest to god kid that was playing with him for uh, Tear Garden yeah, and uh, Oceana, he he was great, but he didn't sound like Jimmy. And those those yeah. albums, they, they had a significantly different feel, and I mm-hmm. think that that's a large part of it. Um, because if, if you go back to like the, the early discography with Jimmy, um, a lot of other drummers in the rock space would have approached that like rock drummers. And what he did is instead took that kind of jazz background and applied it to rock and it gave it a more interesting sound. Yeah. And that's, that's a big part of the reason that they were able to kick off in the first place. Like, yeah, th- 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 there's no smashing pumpkins without Jimmy for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. It's funny that, I mean, yeah, Mike had a impossible task. He was just, everything was just going to work against him. There was no way he was going to survive in that situation. I think he did admirably well, <laughs> but man, like he really, uh, we, I mean, I was watching, um, uh, some footage of, he played like geek USA, you know, and he was like holding his own on that. And I'm like, God, I mean, he was good. It just didn't quite, it just wasn't, you can't, it's impossible. You well, know, and, and, and that's the weirdest thing. You think with drums that, that, you know, more or less if you play the same pattern, right, it's going to sound the same, but you set any three drummers down to play the exact same drum beat, it's going to feel and sound different. Yeah. Every time. It's amazing. It's one of those things that I, I mean, I would, uh, you know, teach improv and sketch comedy at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. And one of the thing I was like always pointing out is like, you got to learn these basic tools just like you would with music or art or any of this stuff. And the way that you interpret it, the way you do it is what makes it special. Mm-hmm. You know, anybody can play three chords, but it's the way that Nirvana or the Ramones played it that made it so special. It's like, you got to know these things and then you have your own stuff that goes out of it. And I think with Jimmy, especially this album he really is i don't think i really appreciated just how 
prominent and amazing he is on this album, especially mm-hmm. with the track United States. Good God. <laughs> where it's that single take, it's just... And I we just saw them. Uh, we did a Beach Life Festival, and then I saw them in Santa Barbara. And there's a section where he just gets to go, you know, he just gets to do his own thing, and it was just... Awe. I was in awe, you know, I was just yeah. like, everybody was just flabbergasted just with their jaws on the floor, watching him just do his solo shit. And it's just, it's incredible. I mean, he still has it too. It's just, uh, I can't wait to hear this new album because it's going to be a lot more of that stuff. You know, it's going to be pretty epic. Uh, but man, yeah. Chamberlain doing what he does best is just untouched. Chef's yeah. kiss. I mean, um, I mean, I'm not a musician. I don't usually, it takes a lot for me to notice like a drummer because that's usually in the right. back, in the background kind of thing. So many times we, uh, when I'm listening to this album, they're just like, oh, Jim, you know, Jimmy, he, oh, I, 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 this is, I'm so happy for Jimmy because he's doing his thing right now. Like this is, <laughs> yeah. this is great. It, yeah. The, he does such a great job on this. Like this is, I, I know it's, it's, it's already the Billy and Jimmy show on for this album but it's like it feels like they're the most equal that they're they're ever they've ever been in this Mm -hmm. band yeah yeah because i mean it truly is i mean they we'll go through the history actually uh right now because we'll touch on that about like how they actually started writing the album uh but for everybody out there it was released july 10th 2007 by martha's music and reprise records um, it was a band's first album following the reunion in 2005 and was produced by Roy Thomas Baker, uh, who is one of the greatest in the industry, who's worked with everybody amazing in classic rock, basically. Yeah. And he follows us on Twitter and retweets us sometimes. And uh, I, I reached out. I reached out. Uh, let's see if we can get him on because he's, uh, he's quite the character. That's awesome. I hope, hope that thought comes through. I hope so, too. <laughs> it would be amazing to have him on. I don't know how that would go, but it would be amazing to have him, have him on. Uh, Terry Date, uh, who a lot of you know, if you were part of the new metal kind of uh, craze as I was in the late, in late high school, uh, he's known for Deftones and a lot of other great kind of new metal bands. I don't think Deftones is new metal, but that's another story. But, um, and then also produced by Billy Corgan and Jimmy, Jimmy Chamberlain. It was recorded August 2006 through February 2007. And um, so the way this came about, so Billy had broken up the band in 2000 and then moved on to Zwan. And we've already covered all of Zwan and that whole history and how that fell apart and whatnot. And then we also covered the Future Embrace. And one of the things that we mentioned in the Future Embrace episode was that the day that the Future Embrace was released, he took out a full-page advertisement in the Chicago Tribune and Chicago Sun-Times to announce that he had made plans to revive the band. And so it kind of squashed any any kind of um, potential for the Future Embrace because people were like, all right, well, fuck it. That's, we want the pumpkins. And in that process, they were, he was trying to get back. Uh, James was not interested. So thanks, but no thanks. Same with Darcy. Didn't want to have anything to do with it. So they're like, all right, it's just going to be us too. So let's kind of uh, shack up here in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona. And they did this in November of 2005. And they started writing and rehearsing new songs and just trying to figure it out. And there's a bonus DVD that came with one of the editions where it has like a little bit of like the background and there's video from... Uh, that era where they're just kind of hanging out and lounging at this place and just playing and 
uh, hashing it out. And it's exactly what you said, Tyler, where it's like you can tell like that's that definitely was the process. It was definitely felt more collaborative than in the past, or at least I see that now with the hindsight. I think you're completely right about that. And that's because they were just right on top of each other, just, you know, eat, breathe, sleep, uh, new pumpkins and trying to figure out like, well, what direction do we go in? And uh, they recorded roughly 30 song ideas. Were you aware of uh, Corgan's uh, like solo stuff or any of that? Like uh, as far as like the drama with the band at that time? No. I, I think for me, I knew I knew Corgan had a solo album. I um, the the other side band stuff that he did or uh, Jimmy's stuff on his own, mm-hmm. I didn't really have any knowledge of until you know really I think whenever whenever Wikipedia came out and I got bored and it's like oh what I'll look at that article on this pumpkins, um, but I mean I knew that there was some drama. I just knew that they had broken up and then they're back together. And that's yeah. what that was my mindset going into the album. And I did. I think it took a long time afterwards where I was like, "Oh, this is only two of the original," and, and diving right. into all of that, all of that stuff, and actually looking into the drama. But uh, no, I mean, yeah. Not, so not really. I just knew break up. Now they're back. Here's the big. You know, here's the new big album. Yeah, and I should probably point out. I, I said Darcy, but I don't know if they actually. This is something I'm un, I'm unclear about. I don't know if he actually reached out to Darcy because I think there was still some bad blood there. And he asked Melissa Oftemar if he uh, if she could come back because uh, she toured with them during or she was part of the band. She never recorded with them, but was part of the band uh, during the Machina era. And I guess they wanted to see if she could come back, but she declined. I thought she I did. I thought she did record, or at least she was. I, I thought I've seen video of her in a studio. But maybe yeah, was... she recorded. Um, I think it was uh, Rock On. There was like one, there was one, one re- actual bit. studio okay. recording or live recording okay. that she did. There might have been one or two, but it was like only like an off session because Darcy had started the recording of Machina mm. and then right. Billy eventually took over all did, that. Did, uh, did his Billy things and took over. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So like once they kind of figured things out, they started kind of um, auditioning people to be part of the band to see that who would actually gel with the band, who would actually fit with the band, because it is kind of more than even just chops. It's a look too. And like mm-hmm. we talked about earlier, it's like people were kind of critical being like, Oh, you're just kind of casting for the parts. But if you watch those live performances, it's so much more than that. You can't just look the part. You have to walk the walk too. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And if you look at those performances from that time, you know, you have Jeff Schroeder from uh, the Lassie foundation. I don't know if you were familiar with them, at the time I was, um, or early aughts, I was uh, doing a indie alt radio show at my college, mm-hmm. and uh, I was really big into the Lassie Foundation. So to find out that uh, you know Jeff had moved to the Pumpkins was really like cool for me because I was like, oh, awesome, because he's such a great guitar player, and they were awesome live. And then I wasn't familiar with Ginger, but like if you watch those those live uh, videos, especially of something like Gossamer, yep. the stuff that wasn't released. You know, Mm -hmm. you're just like, holy shit. I mean, she could really, really uh, hold her own with uh, Jimmy, especially because that's what's important, right? Yeah. Bass player and the drummer. It's like if you don't have those two connect, then it's kind of a lost cause. (laughs) I I, I remember at some point uh, I had a a friend of a father, uh, sorry, father of a friend, I should say, 
who was a Pumpkins fan and said, oh, yeah, well, he just he just always gets some hot chicken to play bass. And then he like puts on the, the live performance of Gossamer for me. And I'm like, this gal fucks. Are you kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> She's so good. Yeah. It's like, so much more than that. I mean, it's like that's like somebody accusing like Prince of just like, you know, being like, oh, you just want hot people in your band. And it's like, well, have you fucking heard them play? <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're hot and amazing. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> like, exactly. They can't just be hot. Uh, it's not like a boy band or whatever, you know, not to throw shade at that. It's its own thing, but it just really does feel like, I don't know. People just love to talk shit, you know? And, uh, one of the things that we try to do with this podcast is kind of focus more on like what we like about these things. And so when we see something like the proficiency of Jeff or Ginger, we're like going to sing their praises because really, uh, they had we're going to hopefully talk to ginger soon too. Uh, and it really, I can't wait to like talk to her about like, you know, those expectations. Cause that had to be, and we mm-hmm. talked to Jeff a little bit about this too. In recent episodes, just being like that expectation of having to step into that. Right. I, I can't imagine what that is to step into a band of that caliber and all eyes on there are, are on them to see. All right. What do you got? Mm-hmm. You're not, you're not, uh, James and Darcy. Who are you? Who are you? You're just hired guns. You know, it's like, it's such a hard thing. And now Jeff is, you know, been in the band longer than any other member other than Billy. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like (laughs) Rob from Metallica, you know, he's been the longest bass player. It's, it's just such a difficult thing because I think people who aren't in bands and haven't been in bands don't understand how much, um, it's like any other relationship, right? There, there, there's this, uh, this period of feeling each other out and then you get into a, a, a point where you start to have a shared vocabulary and there's a communication that happens while you're playing, right? Like a nonverbal communication that happens. You don't just get hired guns. I mean, and, and if you're yeah. a pop act, yeah, sure, maybe you get all the best session players in the world, but for, for a rock band like this, it's definitely a, a much more like relationship-driven, communication-driven thing. And so when these people are showing up, like they've been rehearsing for months before they ever tour with any of this. Oh, they're yeah. they're part of the band. <laughs> like yeah. and and it's it's gotta suck from their perspective to have everybody arrive so contrarian, so ready to hate them. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> you know? And especially with the pumpkins too, because there's such a and I would even say at that time too, a certain fan base that just kind of sat in resentment you know an expectation <laughs> and so and you know uh some of us were a little guilty of that too to a certain extent but not to the extent that some people still live in yeah uh yeah. to this day where it's just completely like i don't know what to tell you man then like just keep listening to the albums you like then yeah fuck off like because i honestly it's like what do you what do you want what do you expect like are you just gonna you just want to be miserable at this point i I feel like that yeah there's a whole cadre of people that like treat anything that came out after machina as false pumpkins yeah (laughs) exactly and i think that if people actually sat down and because i'm i'm eager to revisit uh i mean i love oceania uh, it's mm-hmm. one of my favorite pumpkin albums. I think it's uh, highly underrated, and I think people, there, enough pumpkin fans say that too. But the stuff like Monuments or even Shiny, like that's the stuff that I'm kind of looking forward to because I liked Sear a lot. Um, mm-hmm. But because it felt more like, okay, this is revitalized. It's something fresh. It's something that you, you could tell that they want to do. But with Monuments and uh, Shiny, I'm eager to revisit 
those. Because I need a new perspective on it, because that's still something I'm kind of, I have a little bit of issue with monuments, at least, you know, mm -hmm. uh, getting through that. But if you really sat down with this stuff, and I especially think like Zeitgeist Era or Oceania, people would really see it differently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think they would. Uh, so just to kind of point out here, uh, they wanted to record this live to tape. So we're talking about, you know, the later aughts a little bit, you know, mm -hmm. and it's just not happening. 13 years into the Pro Tools takeover. Yeah, it's, yeah it's, Pro Tools is just like the commonplace. Yeah. You're you're looked like you're an idiot and crazy if you say that you want to record it. To, unless you're like going to Steve Albini to record. <laughs> yeah. And I don't see the pumpkins going to Steve Albini nah. <laughs> to record anything. <laughs> um, but... Uh, yeah, so they wanted it without click tracks or editing, so that was another thing that was a huge uh, task for them. So the reprise record suggests that they used Rob Cavallo, who we know as uh, famously for a lot of like albums in the late 90s and the early aughts, especially American Idiot. Mm -hmm. So he is just like hot shit at this time. He's the producer to be working with, especially with... Not legacy bands, but bands from the 90s that were big kind of fell off and then, you know, kind of make their comeback, especially with Green Day. And um, they tried to work with them, I guess, but then they didn't really feel like it was a match. And they were like, well, no thanks. Uh, and then they met with um, Roy Thomas Baker and they hit it off. Uh, and Terry Date, they got along with as well. So he, he produced some of those tracks. But in that documentary the the kind of epk thing that comes with uh, one of the editions of zeitgeist they talk about how much they identify with roy thomas baker and they like the process of how he worked and him just trying to get the best out of the band one of the things i did love about him talking about it being like i just want to bring out the best you know mm -hmm. you want to be the best version of yourself like to stop expecting a certain thing and just be that thing uh there's this uh there's different mindsets for producers and uh, what's his name david foster the guy that uh gave birth to all the uh all the boy bands and bubblegum pop of the uh, late 90s and early aughts yeah a lot of people think that's a producer i show up i tell you what you are and you execute mm -hmm. and, and 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 roy definitely had the the opposite approach like you tell me what you are and i'll help you get there and that's that's a really yeah. that that's especially when you've got somebody who's as brooding and creative as Billy Corgan. Yeah. That's that's the kind of that's the kind of leadership you need on a record. It's like, okay, paint me the target and I'll and I'll sling you at it, you know? Yeah, it's it's kind of I, I don't know like what your because uh, you you've covered so many different types of I mean you've covered like um like nine inch nails and like you're doing Lincoln Park and you've covered some other stuff too, like your one offs and whatnot and then especially with the pumpkins catalog. And you you know from covering each album's how a producer, you know, actually kind of brings out the elements of the bands. And, like, for me, like, it always kind of surprised me with, like, Rick Rubin. You know, Rick mm -hmm. Rubin was truly hit or miss, but he really is hands-off. And that yeah. works for some people, and I think other people just, they need that, more of that direction. Like, what what, what is your opinion on that? So Rick Rubin's sort of the, the, the Mr. Miyagi sort of situation exactly like, let, let me drop some some sage wisdom on you and then i'm gonna go smoke a sp uh, smoke a spliff while you uh <laughs> while you figure it out um <laughs> right like that's yeah that that's that's the vibe um and and 
it's again ju just like uh like building a band is very much about the relationships between the instrumentalists uh it's 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 the same way like it's it, dating is is finding a good uh a good producer right like yeah and sometimes the producer you need for one record is not the producer you need for the next right you now just just as right. like you know often you know romantic relationships are only for a season <laughs> it's, yeah. it's it's the same sort of deal and so like it seems very much like roy was the guy they needed at that moment yeah, especially with the kind of style that Zeitgeist is. And that's another thing I couldn't appreciate at the time because now uh, my palate growing, you know, mm -hmm. has grown. And mm -hmm. I have kind of a soft spot for like, you know, even like 70s, 80s metal, you know, uh, or Scorpions, you know, yeah. stuff like that. <laughs> yep. Uh, where they do have a love letter with Tarantulas as a kind of a love letter to Scorpions a bit. And. It, it's one of those things I recognize now and being like, this is fucking rad, you know, where it's like, I see what they're doing. I see how they're they're doing from covering the pumpkins. You're like, oh, they're interpreting this their, this their own way. Mm -hmm. And to me, it almost felt like because if you look at that time uh, or at least from like maybe 2002 on. And I apologize if anybody loves this band and I, I do like this band, but it felt like. You know, Muse was on the scene at that time. Like, you couldn't mm -hmm. es uh, escape, um, uh, what's the name of the album? Um, not Hysteria. What? Absolution was the, the the one that had Hysteria on it. That's right, yeah. So, Absolution. So, that one was a huge album at that time, in that kind of time of the aughts. And it's got this big kind of queen bomba bombastic mm -hmm. sound. And I loved it, but I could see Billy being cynical about it. Hearing something like that or bands like that on the radio and being like, okay well sure cool but i think i could do it a little bit better but people not interpreting it that way and kind of being like now we like this other thing you know what i mean it's like a taster's choice thing i don't know for me it always felt like billy kind of seeing what was kind of trendy at the time and being like well let let me take a swing at it you think that's good check this shit out and, and it's funny you should mention that because there's a handful of tracks on this record that that to me, have little little tastes of Muse in them, absolutely. Uh, but but definitely filtered through a Billy kind of lens. But like uh, yeah. like, like Death from Above in particular. You rock and roll, you sun bed, downtown. Death from above. Oh, death from above. Yes, love, I'm sinking. I found the way you are. Oh yeah, it feels like kind of like a uh, maybe a reject muse track that like he picked up and was like, okay, how do I hone this right? Like <laughs> seven shades of black. Yeah, I mean like uh, the the la the layered vocaling the. Uh, yeah. The layered harmonic guitar leads, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's just so much feels like that. It's feel, it feels like he's like, no, I can do this better. Yeah. <laughs> and in my opinion, that's kind of what it felt like. And I think Muse is fine. I think they're they're yeah. they're good. And I really enjoyed that album. But it did feel like, from hindsight, it feels like, oh, when I listen to Zeitgeist now, it feels like him interpreting that era and mm -hmm. kind of doing it in the Pumpkins way. Because even with songs like. Um, 
that's the way my love is. You know, that's kind of a typical radio hit song, mm-hmm. but done through the pumpkin's filter. That's the way. And I think that one's a really good example of something you see across the record, um, uh, but but kind of like most aggressively there in like Doomsday Clock, where the instrumentation is so full. It's almost like Phil Spector wall of sound level. Like yes. It's huge. And then Billy is singing somewhat gently, right? Like with, with no with no push, no growl, but because he, he has such a kind of forward, bright, nasally tone, Right, it it actually sits in the mix in a way that you can actually hear the lyrics most of the time. Yeah, and a lot of people couldn't get away with that. It's like it's a how does his particular peculiarities as a musician, as a songwriter, as a singer, lend to this really very much having its own flavor, even if it is kind of interpreting interpreting the times. Yeah, and that that kind of leads to a uh, interesting point because one of the biggest criticisms of this album is the way that it's mixed. And I share this- some of that. <laughs> right. So th- this is something we can talk about uh, because uh, people were not used to his vocals being so kind of prominent as it was in the past. Yeah. yeah. Before it was blended in more. And now mm-hmm. it felt like post-Reformation, his vocals were very much in the center of the song more than they used to be. Um, and some people just didn't like that kind of it felt a little dry to them. You know, there wasn't as much kind of going on. The mutron mutron biphase of you know his vocals of Siamese Dream and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What? So, uh, since you have that perspective of like you kind of started with this and then going back and stuff, how do you feel about the production? Because I know, uh, I mean, y'all are like you know you break down things musically, you know, from the music theory standpoint, which I flunked out of at my freshman year of college. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't get piano theory. Um, no worries. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. What, what is your, what are your, what are your views on the production of this? So before I go all in, because I've, I've got like some, some pretty deep nerd credentials here, Tyler, do you have any feelings about the mix? I mean, it's one of those, I mean, I think it might be hard for me because I'm not, I have no music background um, and my I heard this is my first pumpkins and so I heard this and I, I enjoyed it enough that I it's hard for me to really critique the, uh, the you know the, those little nuances so I mean I for me not so much um, I, I would be interested to hear a like a remix a remaster uh, you know if Billy or somebody else, um, who could who could try to you know bring out those better those better things um, or, or do them better? Then I would totally be down for it, um, but not I, for me, not so much. Nothing nothing jumps out at me. So go go okay. for it, Brian. Okay, um, let me take a really deep breath here. Apologies for the incoming diatribe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so for, for the most part, I think the album sounds very good. It's just out of balance, right? So there's moments where it's instrumental only and everything sounds gigantic. Absolutely huge. Um, but his vocals uh, vacillate wildly between being buried in the mix to the point where you can't actually really pick out the lyrics. And that's typically when he's singing solo. But then when they've got the layered vocals, it's 
it, it overwhelms everything else. And part of this kind of plays into the whole like loudness wars uh, thing. Yeah. Right, so so they had mixed everything in such a way that uh, probably would have played just fine uh, when we were doing gentler compression in like the seventies and eighties and the heyday of Roy Thomas Baker, right? Um, but then we've got these just absolutely huge limiters we're throwing over the top of it. So the second that you have these nine vocal tracks singing in harmony, everything else ducks behind it, and so they just seem incredibly forward, incredibly bright. So for me, at no point on this record is his voice actually at the appropriate level. It's either one of him that's too damn quiet or nine of him that are way too damn loud. But in terms of sonic balance, other than other than volume, right? Talking about EQ and how everything's panned and, and the actual sonic space of the songs, I think they sound great. Um, yeah. But like the, the vocals were kind of handled wrong. Um, and I think that would be a pretty easy fix on a remix. But because you can you can hear how how good, how full, how clean and and still you know thumpy and aggressive the band sounds when the vocals aren't over the top of them um and it's more of a problem on on the heavier tracks um because there there's more room to compete for within the mix right you know there's more more competition happening less room i should say and what you're talking about is like the brick effect yes where like you put the sound file uh you look at the sound file and it's just all just a big brick Instead yeah. of dynamic, you know, uh, peaks and whatever, I, yeah, and we're we're supposed to be getting uh, the reason why Zeitgeist isn't on streaming is because you know Billy wanted control over, you know how it's how it's presented and blah blah blah, but because he is remixing the album, and it will be coming out sometime in the next five years. <laughs> I don't know, you know, because those were issues. Fifteen years. It's Billy's, yeah, Billy so, standard time. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's, I mean, the Machina reissue is its own issue because of the label. Yeah. Though it's all done and they're just sitting on it, which is very frustrating. But yeah, yeah, yeah with Zeitgeist, I'm especially interested to see how he remixes that and how like they fix some of those issues. Hopefully, fix it because we still have that issue with the loudness. Because I feel like I wish more bands offered the wave you know download or the you know like mp3 wave like kind of like what nine inch nails does when you buy their yeah. albums uh where you get the yeah. high quality or even like the pressings that are specifically made for like that dynamic range which i really appreciate um and sometimes you don't get that with reissues you still get like that compressed you basically get a compressed remix the the only thing that worries me about this now i'm thinking about though is the album was was cut to tape, tape. um yeah. and, and and you can you can go in and and uh you know absolutely do remix and remaster on, on on 24 channel tape like that that's a thing that can be done so long as the hardware still exists and there's getting to be less and less consoles that can interface with 24 uh 24 channel two inch tape you know it's yeah it, it, it the, the time is kind of now because it's, it, there's only like another 10 years before all those machines are broken well i know for machina he had a i mean they had to like bake some of the dat tapes or whatever just mm -hmm. to get the the actual sound out or whatever and yeah. then uh then he they lost some of the parts and they had to re-record some of it so it's like not even mm -hmm. like some of the original stuff so I don't know if that's going to have to have to happen with this. But speaking of like the gear that they use, so they recorded this at Carrie Brown's house, 
who was part of the band Catherine and ex-husband of Darcy. And they had the same 24-track tape recorder that 1995's Melancholy and Infinite Sadness was recorded on. So you can hear some of that tone. Yes. I think there are parts of the albums where it's like, oh, that does sound like a melancholy, like B-side kind of guitar sound on it. Like there's this, there is a brightness, like especially with like, um, you know, uh, Dave Grohl talking about the Neve console at Sound mm-hmm. City, mm-hmm. you know, like there yep. just is certain a brightness. There, there are lives to these machines. It's, it's such an interesting thing because the, the analog formats all... They, they allow for a certain amount of compression and distortion to happen in kind of the upper mids. It makes everything feel like really warm while yeah. still bright. And if you try to emulate that digitally without extraordinarily expensive outboard gear or extraordinarily expensive uh, uh, plugins, what you end up with is just something that just kind of sounds muddy or yeah. something that sounds piercing. And there's something about those older <laughs> analog uh, consoles that just that there's mojo there that absolutely works. And is kind of harder to quantify, but very easy to qualify. <laughs> yeah. You I mean, know? it's a difference between, I mean, you could definitely hear it like from, you take something like Fleetwood Mac's Tusk and then you, you know, get a, I don't know, a, uh, I'm trying to think of like the first digital kind of like album that they made in like the mid 80s. You know, you just like, you can so, tell I mean, it's the, the first one would have been Ry Cooter. Maybe. <laughs> I, don't, yeah, exactly. I don't know if that's actually a good <laughs> yeah. example though. <laughs> <laughs> Rykuter or Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I mean, even Fleetwood Mac's albums in the later, you know, like the 80s yeah. and stuff, or like Heart, you know, it's like you could tell, you could just feel it. Just yeah. has this like clinical kind of feel to it. The, the recording of this uh, said that it was recorded in 12 hour days, six or seven days a week until it was finished. And I know in that documentary, Jimmy was like, that's just what the album needed. Mm-hmm. It's like you know you kind of accept it you just kind of get in there and you just do the work you you have to hunker down uh because that's what the album needs and especially with this type of album that's such so massive in scale you can't just kind of half-ass it and just depend on being like well the pumpkins we're good well, and i i think it, it points at uh, a way that the industry sort of changed uh in the early 90s largely around bands like the pumpkins where yeah. the, you you used to go out and play all your songs and you workshopped them on the road and you got them tidy and then you went in and recorded them as fast as you possibly can, and then mm-hmm. there was this shift in the I mean I mean you, you can even uh, you know with the current popularity of of Kate Bush you can go back to you know people talking about starting to work with Fairlight samplers and kind of using the studio as part of the writing process. Yeah. Right. And and this is sort of a very extreme version of that where it's like two dudes in a cage match with their own. Uh, with their own creativity <laughs> yeah because i remember like in the late 80s and early 90s like bands you would love you're like oh it's four uh, years before an album mm-hmm. you know or between each album you know i have to wait four years for a new mm-hmm. u2 album or a metallica album mm-hmm. and that kind of or red hot chili peppers is like that was just kind of the standard mm-hmm. at the time because they're just trying to hash it out and also they're going through their own drama or whatever but uh that was yeah that was just kind of the commonplace instead of just kind of just belting it out and getting out but um yeah because chamberlain said that uh the mindset of the record was to put our best foot forward and not get too artsy we wanted to try to create a body of work that was concentrated enough to bring back a fan base and invigorate a new fan base we kept it pretty close to the chest uh and we didn't branch out too deep into art zone 
while we were writing the record and it's it kind of shows because it's it's very straightforward i think there's nothing too experimental we're not getting kind of melancholy we only come out at night type of tracks on this mm-hmm. um it's pretty straightforward but even then like they still can't help themselves you know you have something like united states which is just uh you know fuck you you know metal jam yeah basically like where you're getting like silver fuck i mean but people are yeah. so familiar with it but it's still kind of pushing that that limit because even though i was a huge fan of silver fuck when i was listening to it at the time it felt a little overindulgent and i don't know if it was because of again that was at the time people let's let's not judge me um (laughs) but where my headset was or like my head space was was just like i i just i think it was because of like the album rollout and pat talked a little bit about this in the intro of just kind of being overwhelmed by the return and what it was and having all these different editions of the album and having a, a track like United States almost felt like bloated to me. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't have the time. I'm like, no, I want to listen to a, you know, a, a two minute white stripe song or whatever. You know, I want to listen to the Sonics and I don't have time for this. Well, and, and it's un- under the best of circumstances. It's hard to dedicate 10 minutes to a song. <laughs> yes. But if you have 10 <laughs> minutes to spare, all of a sudden it becomes worth it. For me, it's one of the high points of the record. Yeah. yeah, but but it's it's funny you talk about um, the the way that they were attempting not to branch out into art zone. I'm I'm uh, atten- uh, intentionally sort of scratching an old wound here. Tyler, are there any tracks that you feel like they maybe went a little too into the art zone? <laughs> I I mean, so, uh, okay. So in our episode, um, I was I I I said some very uh, unfair and discouraging things <laughs> about the song "Pomp and Circumstances." And uh, it's been two years. I've revisited the album a few times. Um, You know, I really dove into it prepping for this. Um, And I stand by every word I said. It's a terrible song. Um, I mean, it's not that bad. It's not a terrible, no, I'm not, I'm being a little too much there. But I'm not a big fan of Pop and Circumstances. You're being a provocateur here. Um, But uh, it's, it, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like it clicks on this album clicks in with the rest of the songs that are on this album so i don't know i mean yeah there's some there's some weirdness that happens there that i'm just not a fan of um that's the one song i would take off the album You know, that's a whole other topic, though. I think we're trying to resequence and replace a song, but I'd, I'd be down for that. But so I think one of the things that's incredible about the record, though, is is the way that I think it really is actually a very good intro point for Smashing Pumpkins because you've got things like pomp and circumstance. It seems like they might be at home on like a door, and then you've got some stuff that starts to harken forward to what Tear Garden's going to sound like, and then you've got this kind of like new like prime driving area that they've got a lot of it and then a lot of stuff that kind of sounds like it could have come off of melancholy or siamese dream yeah it's like I it's mean, it's uh, a good way to get used to the band 
I mean, and, and looking back at it after doing the whole series, I mean, this album has a lot of like the trademark uh, Pumpkins tropes. Uh, you got like, you know, crazy guitar solos, at least one giant song that goes, you know, that winds and goes into different places. You have, a, and then you have the, you know, Billy Corgan spelling uh, title song, uh, titles of the songs weird with like putting Z's where there should be S's and stuff like that. So you get a little bit right. of everything, you know, you get it. It is, in my opinion, and it was my first, you know, introduction to pumpkins, but I feel like this is a solid introduction to pumpkins. You just don't know that you're getting fed the weird spelling and the, you know, guitars and, and stuff. So Yeah, it kind of feels like the polished riffs from uh, the Melancholy era, and then you kind of work them out and polish them up, and that's kind of what Zeitgeist felt for, like, to me. Uh, with Pomp, I, I also didn't appreciate it at the time, but I didn't know this until maybe a few years ago that they had uh, they had asked Danny Elfman to contribute to the track really? <laughs> to like write for the track and help it out and like do all this stuff but uh, apparently they couldn't hmm. kind of find common ground or just didn't work out artistically together and they uh, separated ways amicably uh, but that makes sense to me knowing that yeah. information and listening to the song then I'm like oh okay I get what they're going for I get the sense, and then the theme of the album, you know, yeah. It, Billy's take on Danny Elfman. Yeah. It, it, it clicks for me, yeah. Yeah, that's what it kind of does. It has, and then to me, it kind of feels like, sometimes he does this with the albums, but it kind of feels like it's like closing a theme. You know, it's just kind of like more of a, it, Pumpkins always felt more like, Pat and I had talked about with this with certain albums, even w within Pumpkin albums, where some stuff feels cinematic and other stuff feels like it's a Broadway play. Mm-hmm. And most of, maybe it's because of the Transformers uh, element of Doomsday Clock. I mean, like, I would say, like, most of Zeitgeist feels cinematic, but that last part feels like the closing of the curtain of a play. Mm -hmm. You know, kind of more par for the course of, like, melancholy or something, like, or a door, you know, that has this kind of dramatic tone to it, uh, This uh, these bookends, uh, which I yeah. can see, like, why it doesn't quite fit for me either. Uh, the tone feels I mean, there's a no off. setup. There's there's no setup for that. You know, you have the curtain closing. Yeah. But if for if you're listening to the album, I didn't even know the curtain was up there. Like, you yeah, know, you didn't open the curtain. You know that. So I, you know, if they had done maybe some hints of that earlier in the album, even if just putting some a weird instrumental thing at the beginning, uh, that's a, a separate track, and then that's what that's our bookend. You know, I think that would have fit a lot better. For me, well, it, I think I think it goes back to some of the stuff that y'all were talking about on your on your melancholy episodes, where like you know there there were there were kind of bits of fancy and whimsy, you know, yeah, that, 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 that were kind of interspersed throughout it that maybe you didn't necessarily catch on a casual listen, but if you're if you're paying attention, it's there, and it made the kind of dramatic intentions of that record work from one end to the other. Here, you don't really get that. It is more or less a straight ahead rock record, and it's like okay, and by the way, we have this big closing number. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I think also, it, I think the, so let's talk about this, because this kind of ties into what I want to talk about, about that they had uh, the release of the album, we had talked a little bit about this, but that uh, they had the multiple editions. Mm -hmm. So Zeitgeist was released in multiple special editions in six different colors with 16 tracks in total. So three American versions each had a unique bonus track but were exclusive to the iTunes Store, Best Buy, and Target, 
So in October 2007, less than four months after the album's release, Best Buy released an exclusive reissue of Zeitgeist that included three bonus tracks, one exclusive, and a DVD. And then in January of 2008, iTunes released a deluxe edition that included the American Gothic EP, which we'll cover separate. That's that's what I'm saying, like overwhelming. It's, it's a lot. I mean, mm-hmm. fans, um, everyone knows the fans love buying the album multiple times for that one extra <laughs> song that is also available on the internet uh, that you don't have, if you know where to look. That is also kind of, that feels like in the era of um, piracy, it kind of feels like, oh, this is almost like a lost cause. You might as well just release it digitally on iTunes, you know, all this extra mm-hmm. stuff, or have it be like some kind of other release than kind of releasing these other special editions. But I get that collector's aspect, especially with Billy. I can see him maybe having the idea of like being like, we've moved too far away from, you know, the physical culture of media. Mm-hmm. Here's something mm-hmm. fun for you. But I think it kind of backfired. I, and I mean, I... I read that all as being not necessarily being a Billy Corgan uh, call, but a uh, record label. Let's let's cash uh, in on 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 the name of the Pumpkins as much as we can. Call right, but there, there's something really silly about it though, where like basically like the the coding everything by color and then having exclusives for each kind of version of it is literally a record company said hey pokemon worked for kids with versions red and blue let's do that for records feels like it's a little misguided um and i i will say because of we compiled i mean we we had bought the best buy that's the version we had and then uh, one of our listeners luckily uh sent us the zeitgeist uh, title track Mm-hmm. So we have mm-hmm. all the 16 tracks together. And when you listen to it in this like kind of massive ultimate edition, uh, Pomp doesn't kind of feel as, uh, it doesn't s- stick out as much as a sore thumb because you've got yeah. songs like Ma Bell and uh, some of these other kind of extra tracks that kind of give you a, a taste, a little hint of that. And then after that, then like if you put Zeitgeist, the title track at the very end, it feels a little bit more like, okay, it's that whole SNL model of like the 10 to one sketch where they put the weirder one, you know, at mm-hmm. the end, Yeah. you know? So like pop is kind of your weird one, but then you have that kind of like slow, uh, kind of easy out the more traditional out with zeitgeist, the title track. Don't see what I see. Don't leave what I must leave behind. Lost down this road. Are there any real Sundays to find this style? I'm hunger, the deep well. I'm a stranger held in this heart, a lonely hunter now. I, I think a lot of that is, like you said, because you have all of them, right? Where I think, yeah. Tyler, you and I had basically the red edition, right? So you got 11 tracks yeah. that mostly are go, 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 go. And then it's just all, all of a sudden we have that. But I, having just recently listened to like Stellar, Mabel, um, Death from Above, a lot of these ones that weren't on uh, that first edition that we had, it does begin to make a little more sense for sure. Yeah, yeah, I, and and really, and when we covered it for our episode, we just focused on that initial standard red version. Um, so it was actually yeah. really kind of cool to like revisit it 
for prepping for this and putting slotting in those songs. And I'd heard those songs before, but it was always just, oh, it's a B-side extra. And I never yeah. really listened to it in the context of the album. And I, and I, did, well, I was never a big fan of any of them before and then now listening to them in this context and this sequence it really helped make all of those work a lot better for me absolutely yeah we had we had uh kind of debated about how we wanted to cover the album because you know album proper and then album uh deluxe if you will or whatever um and we decided just to kind of go with the whole thing just to kind of cover Mm -hmm. the the overview of zeitgeist and i was surprised at how much i liked it with those other with a few exceptions where i was like okay i can see why this one was left off and why it's a bonus track and it probably should have stayed like a b-side or bonus track but it really did add to the i thought it gave it more dimension Mm -hmm. uh the album itself so it didn't kind of feel like a little samey or gave it a little bit more of that pumpkins flair to it yeah yeah it once once i got out of my head of this these these three songs are intruding on my great album that is zeitgeist that i have in my head that like locked in when i was you know when it came out in 2007 once i kind of opened it up and thinking about okay no this is the same band that did uh, you know the the huge double albums of a few years prior they you know uh, lock it placing it in with the whole discography putting these tracks back in that makes it feel i don't know it's weird to say but more of a traditional or old school smashing pumpkins sound versus this rock oriented version of the band so going into another subject about the album that's very prominent um and is very unique to a pumpkins album is the the political aspect to it so with Corgan, uh, he had said that uh, the goals were threefold, uh, to make an accessible mainstream rock record and to comment on the emerging fascist political climate of the United States and explore the nature of his band and his friendship with Chamberlain. Um, and he says in the past uh, that political slant from the Smashing Pumpkins would not be right, uh, but Zeitgeist stands as the most overtly political work ever le- released by the band or Corgan himself. Uh, which Chamberlain attributes to the band's interest in the music and life of uh, Fela Kuti. Hmm. I don't know if I'm saying that right. But yeah, yeah, so that makes perfect sense. And yeah, I mean, Billy is very, uh, for for better or worse, um, uh, <laughs> the political stuff, like he's, he, they don't, he's not very, <laughs> I think this is, I think anybody, my personal opinion is if you think you have a hold on what his politics are, you, you have no fucking clue. And people love to say he's this and people love to say he's that, but this is the most kind of clear cut because we're in the Bush era Mm -hmm. of politics. And (laughs) unfortunately we're still seeing this emerging fascist, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, um, still very relevant. And it's so funny having this podcast and having people, listeners and fans, who the things that they say to us sometimes about the politics of the band, about the politics of Billy, mm-hmm. um, it, as, as if they know the guy. Yes. <laughs> and it's very interesting because people have this idea of what it is. But this at this time during the Bush era, it's like. We're at war. We're back in, you know, uh, Iraq. We're doing all this, you know, it's post 9-11. 
we're living in kind of mm-hmm. a society where it's like okay we uh there's surveillance there's all this other stuff that's kind of going on uh and it's very evident that that's where we're at and especially with like the commentary of the artwork so they have shepherd fairy mm-hmm. uh who we know mostly from the obey uh stuff mm-hmm. and very political artists and speaking to the time and we haven't really seen anything overtly political but people here's what i'm trying to say people are trying they they look at zeitgeist now and they kind of filter it through their own feelings of politics currently Mm -hmm. and i've seen it from every side possible where you'll see comments anytime they post something about Zeitgeist, there are so many different interpretations of being like, everybody says the same thing, more relevant than ever, but they all mean different things. Yes. But both, both, yeah, <laughs> diff- which, I mean, I guess on an artistic side, as to, if you're putting out art, then it did its job. Like both, everybody, you know, everybody loves it. Like it did, it's, it made a statement, but everybody and everybody's connecting with it and even if two different people have, think it's the exact saying the exact opposite so i mean it, yeah. it did its job there i think uh i think there's an analog there to the way that uh people in in political discourse today love to invoke 1984 uh right. but the orwell <laughs> right. and everybody has a different idea of what they think that book was actually about oh yeah <laughs> and what what evils it was actually warning us against <laughs> And, yes. and people will cherry pick it to mean whatever whatever the hell their particular bugbear is. And I, I think it's a you know really similar thing with Zeitgeist. But what, what I find interesting is that Billy made it very specific. It, it, it was uh, addressing the fascism. Yes. It, he, he, he was, it wasn't pointed in any particular partisan direction. And you can take, take that whichever way you will. But he was specifically pointing at kind of like the rising nationalism, the rising fascism. And that seemed almost kind of like a little bit sci-fi to me as a very like naive mm-hmm. 18-year-old when this came out. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Same, same year that Year Zero came out by Nine Inch Nails, yes. which also was much more directly narratively painting the same kind of picture. Um, and again, it seemed kind of like sci-fi and far off. And so when I hear people say like, yes, it's more relevant than ever, I agree. <laughs> That those those albums like hit home for me as, as a kind of more civically informed a 33 year old than they did as an 18 year old but when people say that how how many of them are anywhere close to kind of being on the same wavelength as the artists that put them out at that time right and i right. think most like i i can't say that i've i've got the right idea i've but i can use those things to support how i feel about it yeah <laughs> right <laughs> you know it's 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 fascinating it's kind of genius the artwork because mm-hmm. it's so evocative of just like the image on the the album of the statue of liberty with kind of like the rising water and even just like the way that it looks just the aesthetic of it it automatically puts an image or a feeling in your head and especially now with how volatile the the, the political climate is you see that image now and you're even like oh it's like a sniper bullet right to your mm-hmm. brain where you're just like you immediately have a reaction to it you know and e- even the art style itself is somewhat evocative of like soviet era propaganda to a certain oh, extent yeah. like it's it's so good and it's then so you look good. inside and then like the pictures of like then you there's commentary on uh you know reality tv culture you know with paris hilton mm-hmm. you know uh 
uh, Tila Tequila, who he dated, you oh know, like at that God. time he's kind of hanging out with porn stars too. So it's like with Sasha Gray, you know, being in one of yeah. the videos and all this other stuff. Yeah. So it, it's got it's got a little bit of that sense too, where it's like it's just commentary on just the world and the decline of the world, and it's like, oh, we're just still there, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Was there so Billy really hasn't revisited the, these kinds of super political themes in at least not to this degree um do you think he backed off because of backlash or maybe just, yeah he, because he said what he need to say and then he moved on i think yeah i think based off of like because he had done like with his albums like um with like his solo albums rootsy kind of rust belty kind of i know yeah. he's talked about this before where he's like i know we like to villainize but these are still people and you know there are people who are having hard time in the middle you know of the middle of america mm -hmm. and they just see the world differently than we do and like they're experiencing things and he's kind of being sympathetic to everyone and mm -hmm. he's been critical of like people like eddie vetter or whatever he's friends with eddie vetter but he's just like if you get too political then you shut off a, a portion of people that need you mm -hmm. however you know um i have my own feelings on that because you know it, i think to a certain extent yes but then there's also the other side of it uh where i think that there are issues that uh you should speak up about uh mm -hmm. that you should make clear where you stand on especially with uh, fascism and whatnot uh but again there's no obligation you know, that's, mm -hmm. there's no oh, yeah, obligation yeah. on the artist part. And, like, his whole deal, what I've, I've, I've gathered is that he's trying to make sure that his music applies to everyone and that his political message doesn't taint that. Yeah, <laughs> which I, I totally understand. And maybe that Zeitgeist era maybe was leaning a little too far into, like, maybe the Pearl Jam or Nine Inch Nails aspect of the political commentary. Maybe he he did turn some fans off and maybe he was like, I don't want to do that again. So I'll focus on this, but I can't say for sure. I, I think it's a shame um, that it's turned because I feel like this album has a very clear idea of what it's trying to say in a way that a lot of the stuff that came, came in the, in the five years that followed really didn't. Yeah. Um, it, it, it I read it as him having reacted to backlash, right? Like, okay, well, how do how do I how do I go and make something as digestible but still kind of nurtures my soul as a creative? And yeah. like that seemed like Tear Garden. That whole era was him just trying to figure out, okay, well, how do how do I recover from what I've done to myself here? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Let's go into psych territory. Yeah. yeah. Well, Shepard Ferry said about the artwork. He goes, I think global warming is an issue that cur is currently relevant time-sensitive, and a symptom of short-sightedness of the U.S. As a broader metaphor, the drowning Statue of Liberty, a uh, revered icon of the U.S., symbolizes the imminent demise of many of the ideals upon which the nation was founded. Civil liberties, freedom of speech, privacy have been uh, decreasing since 9-11. The sun in the image could either be setting or rising, and this ambiguity shows that there is still hope to turn things around. U.S. is the dominant global force. When things are going wrong in the U.S., they are probably going wrong around the world. I think this image conveys both the U.S. situation and its larger global implications. Uh, not relevant anymore, right? 
<laughs> no, no, no. Certainly not still completely true. Yeah, we fixed yeah, all that. We, fixed. Global warming, we took care of. That's not an issue. And yeah, we're, we're all good, right? <laughs> just, just like all the other issues. The, do you guys remember when Pepsi solved racism? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, we're great. good to go. That's all it took. And I'm just new. enjoying this Mountain Dew Pepsi product. <laughs> <laughs> Mountain Dew. We're not sponsored. <laughs> All joking aside, if we could get a Mountain Dew sponsorship for for our podcast, I think uh, that would make Tyler's entire life. But <laughs> <laughs> so, just kind of like some basic housekeeping stuff, like the release of it. Uh, it debuted at number two on the Billboard 200, which is not too bad. It sold 145,000 copies in the first week. Um, it also reached the top spots on Billboard's Internet Albums and Rock Albums chart in its first week and hit the top 10 in Canada, number one, New Zealand, number one, and the United Kingdom, number four, Germany, number seven, Australia, number seven, and the other countries. And the album was certified gold uh, in February 1st, 2008. And uh, regarding the album's sales in 2010, Corgan stated that the album went gold, but people didn't listen to it. I could tell that people weren't listening to the album. In the past, if you put out an album, people at least knew the first song. We would go out and play Doomsday Clock, and I could tell that they hadn't even, even listened to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't view it as gross disappointment. It's disappointing to me that I was trying to communicate what I was trying to communicate didn't get the chance to be communicated. And to rewind it a little bit, I do wonder how much of the lack of communication uh, was due to the jarring mixes, right? Right. The, the times where you were so shocked by how low the vocals were that it was kind of difficult to engage with the lyric and the times when it was buried. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I yeah I wonder... I mean, I get it because people were so excited about the band to come back that they wanted to... At that point, it, was, it had been seven years. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's a long time for an audience to grow, uh, you know, from their... However, whenever they discovered the band to this time and that nostalgia, even more than ever, you know, just kind of started becoming more and more of a thing. People just kind of our generation, you know, from uh, Generation X to Millennials to, you know, Gen Z now, it's very nostalgia driven. And you want to recapture that feeling. And for a lot of those people who were fans in high school, they missed that time. And you're wanting to recapture that. So when the band isn't exactly that, you're kind of feeling like, okay, well, I'm going to still go see the band because I want to hear today or I want to yeah. hear Bullet with Butterfly Wings. I want to feel like I did in high school when I was up against the rail. And they're not getting that because they're playing Doomsday Clock and they're like, okay, they're going to, there's just, there's just too much against you. You know, yeah. it's just such a hard thing where now people can look at those performances and be like, holy fuck, Doomsday Clock, you know, fucking slaps. It's awesome. <laughs> yes. Um, it's a great song. I remember I, that was one of the tracks that did stand out to me. And I would, as soon as I walked out my door and started walking to the train, hit that play button. That made me feel like fucking awesome. Yeah. Uh, it was great. Um, but we'll get into that when we get into the, uh, the track breakdowns. So the reception was pretty good though, critically, uh, for the most part, four out of five stars from Rolling Stone, uh, Entertainment Week Weekly gave it a B grade. Mm-hmm. Um, Entertainment Weekly, rest in peace. Most people <laughs> accepted the fact that it was Corgan, and uh, critically at least, they accepted the fact that it was just Corgan and Chamberlain because 
they were like, yep, that's what the band kind of was with the, you know, with Siamese Dream, you know, one of the yeah. greatest alternative albums of the 90s, which is just pitch perfect. Yeah, you know, it makes sense. Uh, and it sucks that the other members aren't there, but this is truly the band. Yeah. Uh, and I think it was really hard for people, including me, to kind of accept that. Uh, and then, of course, they praise uh, Chamberlain's drumming. Q Magazine states that Chamberlain uh, remains one of the most powerful drummers in rock. Uh, and Modern Drummer said that it's Chamberlain's greatest drumming ever put to CD. And it, uh, Zeitgeist was uh, number 43 on Rolling Stone's list of top 50 albums of 2007. So kind of par for the course for when we've been revisiting the albums. Mm -hmm. I always thought that like a door got critically panned. But that wasn't the case at all. Yeah. Like even Machina too, like I thought maybe had like some critical panning, but like for all these things that are like uh, Future Embrace, we, which we just talked about as one, they all had good critical response too. It's just the fans. Mm -hmm. It was all really the fans that kind of created this, this kind of air of like, nah, it's not as good. It, it, it's, it's, it's this pedestaling of the past. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and I wonder how much of it is because this is right when uh, like there's no streaming platforms that you can listen to it on. You have to go you have to go to the store buy the CD. Um, I don't even think there's a record an LP version of this that actually like legitimately came out. But um, yeah. Uh, and then you have and and you're also dealing with um, so your numbers would be lower. Uh, if be due to people like Brian and I who just like, oh hey look, I'm gonna download it on the internet and not pay for it, <laughs> and the, you know, and there's no real, there, that's right at the beginning of all that, so they don't really know how to acknowledge how to how to do that or how to to account for that, other than it's bad, stop doing it, uh, go, you know, we need to uh, you know find people or something, so yeah. I, I think that might be part of it too is that. You just, they don't know how to account for it. was at the peak of the proliferation of piracy. And right. so at that point, the record, yeah. record labels would have no idea exactly what the hell was happening to their sales. Yeah, yeah. yeah so I think a, that I might think be part of it right. too. And then and then when you're doing, and then that's the beginning of the uh, enjoying the content or the album uh, piecemeal, where, yeah, I really liked, uh, you know, Doomsday Clock, but then I, you know, I didn't listen to the rest of the album or, you know, somebody, somebody gave me a mixtape CD and there's like, uh, you know, it's all, you know, there, there's United States on there. And that was the only song yeah. that they heard from the album. So there's a lot of that stuff going on, too. And I just I think they don't know how to acknowledge it or account for it also. Yeah. And the the kind of the sad thing after the Zeitgeist kind of era, I mean, they did touring. They did a lot of touring mm -hmm. during this time, which I remember they came to Brooklyn uh, pretty close to where I was and I really wanted to go but I just couldn't afford it because I was just so broke and now looking back at that footage I'm like I wish I would have seen the band during this time did y'all see the band during this time I've never seen seen them live I, I, I would oh, wow. really like to um I know and there's a part of me that's like I don't know I'd love to see, I would have loved to have seen it back in you know pre pre zeitgeist you know with the, yeah. the original four or um I don't know even the zeitgeist tour but um I don't know like I'm not super. I really enjoy it with the stuff they're putting out, but I don't know if I would pay all that money to go stand in a big crowd of people and try to listen to deep. You know, I, I'd want to listen to some of the deeper cuts that I know, and then you know, deal with drunk people and all that stuff. So I don't know. I, I don't even know if I would go back out again and see. Yeah, I will say from my experience seeing them since '96, um, 
the recent shows I ju we just saw, they sound probably better than they have in a long oh. time. Awesome. They okay. are on top of their shit. They're just, everything sounds like it's just firing in all cylinders, like they figured something out. <laughs> and it sounds incredible live now. So I think, like, if you're going to see them, um, I would recommend, I know uh, the 2018 Shiny and Oh So Bright, you know, was like a big kind of comeback tour. Right. And that was great, but there's something about the sound now and the dynamic of the band that like is really worth seeing live. Uh, so I think if in this era, especially when the new album comes out later this year or whatever, if you have a chance to see them and don't have to pay, uh, these tickets are expensive. We just That's bought the, the part, tickets yeah. for the Jane's Addiction Pumpkins tour and... We threw down a few bucks, um, <laughs> but uh, that's just where I get, you know, we get older and the bands we loved growing up are just, you know, they're Rolling Stones level now and mm -hmm. you're going to have to yeah. pay those McCartney ticket prices, you know, <laughs> it sucks. Um, uh, one of the things I want to point out is that Lisa Harriton also was uh, doing keyboards and vocals during this tour, uh, not to discredit her, but she, I thought she was also a really great addition to the band, especially when you watch that uh, performance of Gossamer. Mm -hmm. We're talking mm -hmm. about how great uh, Ginger was, uh, but man, everybody in that whole track. If you haven't seen uh, the performance, the 30 minute or so performance of Gossamer from the <laughs> If All Goes Wrong DVD, it's one of the best, I think, live Pumpkins performances. It is just, I, I was put in a trance. Mm -hmm. during it just because of how hypnotic it is and i thought lisa did an incredible job on the keyboard especially in that song definitely uh sounds incredible Yeah, so that's basically, we're kind of jumped around here a lot, and I'm trying to get a lot of information out because <laughs> uh, there's so, so much. But again, if you uh, want to research a little bit about Zeitgeist, you can go to spcodex.wiki or spfc.org, and you can see all that stuff there. And Pat and I will, of course, be talking a little bit more about this stuff when we cover the tracks individually. But um Brian and Tyler, is there anything else that you would like to discuss about Zeitgeist? Um, I mean, it's not a major thing. I mean, the the uh, the song FOL, which I think yes. came out. Um, I don't have much to say about it other than I, I, it's a banger and I like it. And I know it came from a you know it was released through a car commercial, but I don't. It's it's. I feel like that should get more recognition. I feel like a lot of people kind of just poo poo that one.
that track, those those kind of extra tracks that they released at that time are pretty fantastic, and we're going to cover those in a, their own episode. But mm-hmm. FOL actually made it into the set list of this uh, Rock Invasion tour that just happened. Oh, nice. Like, so everybody was like, holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah, it was really great. And they do like a little breakdown in the middle. If you could find it, you could probably look it up on YouTube, but there's probably some performances of it, but it's really great. Uh, Brian? I think the only thing is that, uh, especially when you get like the the full track list, right? If you can get the 16 track version of this together, it's a really wonderful example of the the benefits of actually sitting down with a record, right? Rather than listening piecemeal, like actually listening to the duration of it and trying to figure out what kind of narrative arc it, it traces. And and just uh, the emotional roller coaster it it sets you on. It's it's it's, it's Again, like albums exist for a reason. I mean, nowadays yeah. people are putting out a lot of, co- you know, like just basically a collection of singles. But this this is a record, especially once you get all the extra tracks in there. It's meant to be an album. That's that's so interesting because of the era it did come out in and the way that I digested it. It definitely was more of a like listening to this song or that song. And when we p- compiled the whole album together and I was listening to it, and then also just with hindsight of being like, the Pumpkins are an album band. Mm-hmm. You just have to take it as a whole. And I think if you're just kind of picking out, which a lot of people did during the Zeitgeist era, it's just not going to have the same resonance that you're going to get from just sitting down with it and just really, I-, I think it's a fantastic album and I didn't really realize that at the time. Well, uh, I just want to thank you all for coming on. I'm a big fan of the podcast. I really loved uh, your coverage of the pumpkin stuff and the Nine Inch Nails stuff. I uh, thought you did an incredible job breaking down these things that I didn't even think about. It was just so cool to kind of, you know, our podcast comes at it from a, you know, a feeling, you know, kind of uh, like this is what it reminds us of or this from our musical knowledge and I played music and wrote music a little bit in the past, but like not part of my life now. And Pat is just a music lover as well. But to have somebody who knows the theory, the music theory, and to approach it like y'all do is really cool. Um, and it really paints it into a different way. And it, re- it made me appreciate, especially with your melancholy coverage, it like really made me appreciate some of these songs. Uh, in a in a new way so uh if all of you are out there uh check out the pumpkin series on this discographers uh it's really fantastic and i think there was a lot of fantastic work that went into it and i appreciate all that hard work (laughs) as we were talking about a little bit beforehand how much goes into editing these episodes and the research and all that and we're just doing it just because it's because we want to talk about it yeah yeah so uh, the, the amount of work that goes into really dissecting the songs is really impressive. And I highly recommend that people check your podcast out. Well, thank you. Thanks very much for having us. Where can people find out about your podcast or do you have any other plugs that you want to uh, promote? Well, uh, if you want to go to our website, it's discogpod.com. And then we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, we have a Patreon if you if you like enjoy us that much that you want to uh, throw us a buck a month or something but um yeah those are the the big places uh, if you, and then i mean obviously on our on our site we have that's where you can find links to you know email us and talk to us directly and you can find us on whatever your podcatcher of choices we're everywhere yeah that too <laughs> all right brian and tyler uh thank you so much for joining us on the smashing pumpcast uh, Pat sends his love. He's sorry that he couldn't join. 
But our next episode, hopefully we'll be covering the Zeitgeist track-by-track breakdown. But if not that, we'll have some other Zeitgeist-related goodie, uh, maybe an interview or a commentary. We shall see. Things are kind of up in the air right now, but uh, we're in Zeitgeist summer, baby. So put on those shades. (laughs) So until next time, farewell and good night. Good night.